Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, uh, including We Need to Talk About Putin, uh, which is what we'll be doing in part today. And um, another of his books is The Weaponization of Everything. Mark is a special guest who's kind enough to share his expertise on this podcast every month. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Hi, my pleasure. I should also mention that I'm currently in D.C. as a public policy fellow at the Wilson Center. Oh, great. Thanks for thanks for that. Um, and it's great to have you. Um, now, as usual these days, I'd like to discuss um, the war in Ukraine and also touch on uh, the situation in Russia and on Russia's relations with the West, or maybe more precisely, um, the West's role in the, in the war in Ukraine and its role in trying to minimize the ill effects of this war when it comes to Ukraine, Russia, and the world. Um, and as the basis for this discussion, I'd like to mainly focus on an article of yours, Mark, that was published in the Sunday Times of London two weeks ago. Uh, now, that may seem like a long time, but I'm pretty sure there's nothing out of date about the points that you made. Uh, the title of this article I'm sorry, the title of the article is At His Most Dangerous and with a political solution now impossible, uh, we're entering final stage Putin. And while final stage Putin is, a very, is an intriguing concept, I want to ask uh, more about the part before that, the idea uh, that a political solution to Russia's war against Ukraine is now impossible. Mark, uh, you do go through this in the article, but could you just explain your thinking on that a bit here? And a related question, uh, is it is it impossible for good uh, forever, or might the possibility of a political solution appear in the future uh, as circumstances change? I'm not advocating this. I'm, I'm asking about it. Um, for example, in the article, you mentioned Kherson, a key southern city that Russian forces seized not long after the February 24th invasion. And you mentioned that it will be hard for the Russian forces to hold and that Ukraine might take it back in a counteroffensive. Now, if that happens, would a political solution, for instance, become possible again, or would it become even less likely? And also, if there can be no political solution, what does that say about how long this war might go on? Okay, well, that's one hell of a lot to unpack there. And I think I am going to actually have to start precisely by, by talking about the whole final stage Putinism point, because I think it, it sets the political context for, if nothing else, the Kremlin's understanding of what's going on. And the basic view I have is that we've seen Putinism, not, not that it's really an ism in the sense of an ideology, but anyway, we've seen this, this, this system's notion of Russia, its place in the world, and how the world works evolve over time. I mean, this, this is one of the interesting paradoxes. Some people say, look, one can see the continuity in Putin's speeches and his words throughout the 22 years he's been in power. 
and that somehow that, that shows that, you know, in a way, this was all inevitable and this was going to happen anyway. And yet one can also see massive differences in how it's operationalized from the early noughts, where we clearly saw Russia trying to cooperate on its own terms with the West all the way through to now. And in a way, how I explain that is often actually that, yes, Putin's core views have not really changed. However, that he has been influenced by different people and different ideas through his presidency. And that, in some ways, actually operationalizes them. It turns them into practical politics. And that we now, really since probably around 2020, though it's not something that one can kind of put a sharp date on, are entering what I'm calling the, the time of Putinism, Petrushevism, after the extraordinarily hawkish, conspiratorial, some might even say paranoid, Secretary of the Security Council, Nikolai Platonovich Patrushev. And just as you know, Marxism-Leninism, one can use as a parallel, you know, Marx really thought he was just describing how natural, social, and above all, economic pressures were reshaping humanity and society, but didn't give practical guidelines for what a socialist, let alone communist state, how it actually would run. And therefore, Marxism-Leninism, and then in due course, Marxism-Leninism-Stalinism, were actually taking the, the broad concepts of Marx and then viewing them through Lenin's often very ruthless political lens. Well, likewise, this is, this is what we see now. And I don't really see the likelihood of any kind of particular reinvention. And what this means is that we are in an era, I think, in which actually Russian policy will be driven by, informed by, these very, very maximalist notions about what's going on. The sense that actually Russia is on the defensive. Um, and however ridiculous that may seem, you know, I, I think it's genuinely believed by Putin that in fact what's happening in Ukraine is, is a war of national defense. And again, look, I really need to stress this. That I, I'm not advocating this view. I'm just saying I think this is genuinely believed that there is some kind of grand Western strategy against Russia, that the Revolution of Dignity was simply a, a coup organized by the CIA, quite possibly um, initially conceived by MI6, and that therefore what, what is happening at the moment is pushing back Western influence from Russia's borders and Russia's rightful sphere of influence as much as anything else. These are frankly perspectives which are pretty much antithetical to how Ukraine sees its place in the world and how we in the West see the world as operating. And I think this is, this is one of the real problems that I think actually the room for some kind of negotiated peace has, has shrunk dramatically. And the striking thing is actually of late, we have seen both sides upping the ante. I mean, the Russians have made it clear that there was some scope for a peace deal in February, March, but that now, in some ways, the, the ask would, would get greater. And in some sense, that's just an inevitable result of politics. You think of the extraordinary costs of this war to Russia, not just in terms of human life, though those are very considerable, um, but also in terms of the massive impact on the economy and, and, and the scarring that will take years, if not longer, to actually heal to that economy. In that context, for Putin to be able to claim victory 
and politically, he absolutely needs to be able to claim some kind of victory. You know, he, he needs to have something more than just simply, I don't know, Ukraine agrees not to join NATO and the, the terms for the reincorporation of the Donbass and Lukansk People's Republics you know, are, are more favourable. No, I mean, he now needs to be able to actually say to the Russian people, it was worth it because we have achieved this. So Russia's ask inevitably has gone up. But also, I would argue, so too has Kiev's. If one looks at uh, Zelensky's rhetoric, I mean, for a long time, he actually maintained what the West tends to regard as strategic ambiguity about issues such as, for example, the future of Crimea. Um, and this was in part because the West was, was pushing him in that direction. I mean, he's clear that there are many within the West, and that includes the United States, who frankly would like to see some kind of hope of an earlier end and are frankly willing to see a certain amount of um, Ukrainian loss of territory as, as a part of that price. I mean, again, people on the whole won't be saying it publicly, but it's, it's, it's pretty clear um, from, from behind-the-scenes conversations, and, it's not, you know, it's, and certainly obviously in Europe as well. And in that context, what's striking is that Zelensky has recently said that, in fact, just as the, the war, Russia's war against Ukraine began in Crimea, it will also end with the reincorporation of Crimea. And at the same time, the attacks on, uh, or the attack rather, um, on Crimean soil recently, the Saki airbase, represents uh, an, an, an upping of the ante. Um, you know, again, it's, 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 it's a statement that even territory that Moscow, clearly in defiance of international law, regards its own territory, is not outside the scope of, of this war. So I think at the moment the problem is there, there is just very, very little room for any kind of negotiation. Both sides are still of the view that they can make enough gains on the battlefield, because that's really where this war will be, for the moment, is going to be decided, that they can actually impose the kind of peace that is in their interests. The Russians whether or not they actually think they'll hold Kherson or whatever, clearly are still clinging to the belief that eventually Western, and maybe Ukrainian, but above all Western resolve will, will break. That Ukraine fatigue will set in. That, that electorates and national leaders become tired of paying the price of continuing this conflict. And let's be perfectly honest, whatever the obvious and extraordinary courage of the Ukrainian people, if the West was not providing weapons, and perhaps even more importantly, was not sustaining the Ukrainian economy, then it'd be very difficult for Ukraine to continue to fight. So that's, that's the, the Kremlin dream. And clearly in, in Kiev, there is a hope that precisely there can be some kind of uh, counteroffensive that in turn allows momentum to swing their way. That if Kherson falls, then maybe they can then push on perhaps even uh, challenge Russian control of Mariupol, and you know, if they can both break the land corridor to Crimea and strike at the bridge, the Kerch Strait Bridge, then you know, Crimea will be isolated and much, much harder for, for the Russians to maintain. So I think this is the thing. So long as both sides have got a hope that they will be able to make advances on the military or political battlefields, then neither of them is willing to make the kind of concessions which would lead to war, to the war being ended. 
And the final point, I mean, you say, well, what does this mean about how long the war lasts? Um, I mean, I just, just to throw in an entirely redundant but uh, you know, useful for me plug, um, the latest episode of my In Moscow Shadows podcast, I talk about an interesting flip we've seen with Defence Minister Shoigu, who for the first months of this war was trying to keep a very low profile. Um, in part, yes, he has some genuine health problems, but it was clearly much more than that. He seemed to be trying as far as it's possible for a defence minister to do so, to dissociate himself from the war. Well, July has seen quite a dramatic turnaround. He's much, much more active. His speeches are rather more bullish. And instead of just simply confining himself to rather sort of factual briefings, he's, he's talking in more general terms. Um, you know, he's, he's clearly now throwing his weight behind this conflict. And then we saw him and Putin together on Navy Day, um, inspecting this, this new sort of military history memorial park outside St. Petersburg with, again, symbolically being guided around by Ksenia Shoigu, Shoigu's youngest daughter, who herself had been in something of a doghouse when on social media she, sh she shared pictures of herself and her, her kid in what seemed to be very much sort of strikingly specifically chosen Ukrainian blue and gold. So, you know, Shoigu has very much now decided that instead of trying to keep a low profile, he needs much to raise his profile. And I would suggest that that's because he, and remember, this is not just an insider, but a very wily political survivor, has concluded, firstly, that this is the new normal, that in some form or other, this conflict is going to continue long term. But secondly, that it's not going to go well. And he wants to make damn sure that he's not in a position to be considered the scapegoat, that people can't say, you didn't really back this war, you were never really enthusiastic about it, and it's because of you that things didn't go well. So I think if we're going to take Shrugu as any guide, the perception seems to be that in some form, and it doesn't, you know, it maybe is a more frozen conflict or a more political economic one, but in some form, this conflict with Ukraine and the West is going to last the long term. All right. Well, thanks very much for that. Um, uh, fascinating about Shoigu. I, I actually hadn't hadn't registered that. Um, uh, it's quite interesting, uh, and and of course, I mean, Russia's Russian officials have been saying that you know they're ready for the long haul, and that's part of, I guess, part of the propaganda. But but uh, you know, um, it does appear that even behind the scenes, uh, they're they're preparing for that. Now, I also want to say thanks. Um, you touched on two things that really that I've always kind of wondered about. Um, one of which is, you know, the idea of how much does Putin believe what he says? And, you know, year, a few years ago, I thought he pretty much didn't believe it, anything, uh, you know, many of his claims. Uh, but more and more, you know, it, it, it's, it seems like maybe he does. Uh, and the other thing uh, that you meant, and, and, and that that kind of really creates a, a problem uh, for the West in terms of like, how do you deal with this person when you're on a completely different level in terms of the truth and, you know, the background to the truth? You know, and I think um, Macron had some problems with that when he met or spoke with Putin a couple of times, you know, during the early in the war and before the war, sort of like on a different wavelength. Um, another thing you mentioned is Patrushev, of course, uh, and I've always you know, sort of thought, how much influence does he have? He always seems like 
sometimes it seems like Putin is almost subordinate to him, at least to me. So, um, you know, your analysis of Putinism, patriotism is quite, uh, it's quite interesting. Um, for the, for the next, uh, second question, I, I'd really will ask only one question, not three or four this time. Um, toward the end of, of the Sunday times article, you write that the West needs to quote, come to terms with the stark reality that we are locked in a struggle with Russia for at least as long as Putin is in the Kremlin. Russia is not about to collapse, nor is its economy imploding, uh, unquote, and you went on. Uh, and you, you also wrote that dealing with this, quote, means more than just buying our gas elsewhere. It means the kind of adaptation we went through in the Cold War, in everything from defense spending to an active struggle for the support of the global South, unquote. Mark, tell us uh, more about these uh, imperatives as you see them. How, how can Western governments and people kind of address the challenge of final stage Putin? Yeah, exactly, because it is going to be long haul. I mean, I, I, particularly when it comes to the economy, there, there, there's some sort of loose talk around, but I, I think one of the best ways of framing it was I heard from Marlene Laruel, who said that, uh, yes, of course, the the Russian economy is becoming dysfunctional, but it is functionally dysfunctional, and they're quite used to dealing with that kind of situation. Yeah, look, I mean, we adopted, we in the West adopted what I think can best be described as a sort of a strategy which really echoes uh, veteran US scholar diplomat George Kennan's framing of political war. You know, the use of all instruments at our disposal short of actual direct fighting to advance our interests. You know, we were happy to let the Ukrainians do the fighting, and that's one war, very 20th century war, and we are engaged in this 21st century type war, non-kinetic one, that is, yes, it's economic. I mean, it's, it, you know, we talk about sanctions. Well, let's, let's just be honest about them. Sanctions are simply part of economic warfare, and that's what we're engaged in. And that also means that we shouldn't be surprised that the Russians engage in it too. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we slam all these sanctions on Russia and then seem shocked when you know, the Russians play games with energy supplies and such like. Of course they're going to. But we engaged in this basically because we thought, or we kidded ourselves, that it would be war on the cheap. I mean, we weren't willing to actually send our fighting men and women to go and die, but we thought, look, this plays to our strengths. We are you know, dominant in these sort of financial economic spheres and so forth, and therefore we can basically squeeze Russia and, and, and you know, force it to, to come to terms. Well, look, economic war like this is not cheap. Political war like this is not cheap. This is not like sanctioning Iran or North Korea. You know, we're, we're dealing with a large and powerful player with, with a strong authoritarian regime, which for a long time has been embedded within the global economic system. And it's fighting back. And, well, that's, that's, that's the way we are. You know, yes, the increases in, in the cost of living and all that kind of thing are, are part of the, the casualties, shall we say, that, that, that we have to um, accept. And given that this is likely to be long term, Again, for many, there was an expectation that, oh, it'll be a few months and then, and then Russia will come to terms. Well, no, actually, this is something we should realize. Authoritarian regimes may lack, shall we say, some of the depth, particularly when it comes to the legitimacy of democracies, but they are capable of focusing their efforts and sustaining it 
often quite long term. So what does this mean for us? Well, yeah, it means that we're going to have to, to accept that. It will be much more like the era of the high Cold War. And when we talk about the Cold War, again, there, there, there's a problem here. We tend to, to default to thinking to the relatively late Cold War, you know, the 1970s and very early 80s, in which, yes, there can be flare-ups. But in some ways, we, we have, by that point, established the rules of the game. And by that point, the Soviet Union was no longer really an evangelical power. Um, Brezhnev and co. Really, well, whether or not they believed in the global triumph of Marxism and Leninism, they didn't really want to kind of stick their necks out for it. In some ways, this is going to be more like the earlier Cold War, Stalin and early Khrushchev Cold War, when you know it's, it's, it's much sharper, it's much more raw, the, the rules of the game haven't been established and, and so forth. So we have to be aware of that. Yes, that's going to mean spending on defence, obviously. Um, but again, I think the, 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 the lesson of, of, of this war is actually that there are limits to the use of military power. And look, Putin's war machine is having the, you know, the, the innards ripped out of it by the Ukrainians. And some of the notions that, oh, well, in fact, Putin will then turn to NATO or Baltic States, Poland, whatever, I regard as entirely fantastical. At the moment, Putin is not able to beat Ukraine. The notion that he could think that he could take on Ukraine plus NATO militarily. And remember, NATO has more ground troops than in Europe without American and Canadian reserves, than the Russians have full stop. So, you know, in that situation, we need to spend in order to have maintain sort of credible, constant capabilities, not just for Russia, but for, for other potential crises. But I think we need to move beyond that. I mean, clearly, we need defense production capacities that we've allowed to atrophy. I mean, this is one of the problems with sending so much weaponry to Ukraine. It is being expended at a rate substantially faster than we can produce. Um, I think, what is it? Is it a quarter or a third, for example, of America's stocks of javelin missiles have now gone and in many cases been used in, in Ukraine. Um, likewise, British production of the N-Law um, is being ramped up, but nonetheless, it cannot be wrapped up at the moment to, to, to a rate to, to meet the need. So, you know, we, we need to make sure that there's defence production capability there which obviously means spending right. But I think we then also need to accept that precisely we are in an era of political war. Um, oh, I, I get thrown another plug, as I talk about in my weaponization of everything. And I think one of the key areas there is going to be counterintelligence, but conceived more broadly. So within NATO, we have this interesting notion. We have this notion that basically all NATO members should be spending at least 2% of their GDP on defense. Now, look, one can argue about whether 2% is the right figure, whether it's too, well, it's probably too low. But anyway, it, it at least it establishes the principle that all members of the alliance have a responsibility to their allies as well as to themselves. And part of that responsibility is spending at least a minimum amount. We don't have anything like that kind of an understanding for spending on internal security and counterintelligence. And as a result of that, we have quite extraordinary variation. There are some countries that obviously spend high. There are some countries that spend frankly embarrassingly low figures. Um, anyway, and, and one look, I have to point to, it's a classic one to point to, is, is Belgium. You know, even though it, it, it's the heart of the, of, of the governance of the European Union, 
nonetheless, I mean, there is ruinously low levels of spending on, on counterintelligence in, in, in Belgium, and that shows. And the trouble is, in an alliance, one weak link endangers the whole chain. So I think, you know, I think we also need to be starting to think about our responsibilities to ourselves and to our allies in a whole variety of other security realms. So yes, this means counterintelligence spending. This means uh, controls on potential dirty money, particularly the dirty money that can then be brought to bear on politics. And more broadly, um, we, we have to look to our own narratives. I mean, yes, I, I mentioned the Global South. We have a tendency to feel that might and right are both on our side. Well, might, maybe, but there's a lot of people who are not convinced that actually right is necessarily on our side. If one looks at who is supporting sanctions, Western measures against Russia and so forth in take the UN, it's basically, with a few exceptions, the global north. In the global south, there is a sense of, look, this is, this is just a kind of a, a struggle that we don't really have to care about. We haven't been able to engage them and make it, make it clear for them why it matters. And our own populations as well. You know, this is quite likely to be a pretty hard winter. And it's not just because of the conflict with Russia, but clearly, especially when it comes to energy prices, and energy prices that will knock on into all kinds of other prices because it also affects companies. You know, we haven't necessarily been able to, in every case, build the right kind of, of, of narrative to ensure long-term sustained support. You know, every, everyone gets infused by a, a cause at the moment. And, you know, I think one can see the Ukrainian flags flying through houses, the really quite striking and moving willingness to, for example, house Ukrainian refugees in people's homes. But there is the risk, and I think we're already beginning to see it, of a certain degree of Ukraine fatigue on both the political as well as the social level. And that has to be addressed. The final point I would make is, and, and, and I'm, I'm just sort of skimming through this, because really this is about a whole alliance strategy for how to deal and contain, with, contain Russia in the future. But I think we have to appreciate the degree to which we are in, in, in a political war, and that we must be thinking about the long term and how we defeat the Kremlin without actually totally burning our bridges with, with Russia and Russians as a whole. And this is particularly, so I think, current at the moment, there is a whole talk about visa bans, uh, or at the very least tourist visas for Russians for in, in Europe. And I'm very, very strongly opposed to that. Not because I necessarily think it's important for Russians to be able to, to go and you know, have, have tourist holidays in the West, where frankly, for most, it's very, very difficult, considering that pretty much all air travel has been banned. But on the other hand, symbolically, the, the, the point where actually we are essentially saying we don't want Russians full stop, Russians are all guilty for a war like this, I, I think is one that we really need to think very carefully. It may make us feel that we are doing something for the right. It's certainly you know, something that, that Zelensky has been calling for. But in terms of the kind of long-term political impact on our relationship with ordinary Russians, I think we need to be quite smart and quite Machiavellian about precisely how we, we use what are our real advantages in terms of legitimacy, soft power, cultural influence, and use them to ensure that we enlist Russians as our allies, 
rather than as uh, sort of blood enemies in our struggle with Putin's Kremlin. Uh, thanks very much, Mark. Um, your kind of addition of, of that of that issue of the the proposals or uh, for for visa bans quite uh, yeah quite timely and could be the subject of of another pod, you know of a full podcast. It's, it's obviously a a big deal at the moment and kind of one of the challenges uh, facing the West. And I think you you put you put uh, a bunch of those challenges and kind of prescriptions. Uh, uh, you, you went through some of those, and, and uh, I think that's very helpful. Um, so I'm not going to comment much more. I'm just, uh, I'm just going to uh, move to questions. Um, if, uh, if anyone has questions, we'd be happy to take a few. So I'll give some moments for people to, okay, uh, I think I have a question here. Um, perhaps not. Um, yeah, just give it a few more moments. Uh, there's a little time. Okay, um, Maximilian Hess, uh, please go ahead. Uh, hi, thank you for uh, doing this and, and um, arranging this. Uh, my question for Mark is about um, the economic war that he thought about, that he mentioned, and the um, you know potential that we underestimated uh, the cost that it would have. Um, where do you see you know the the weakest links in this being? Um, do you have any proposals for uh, how to potentially shore that up? As you know, the economic pain, at least in my opinion is really going to be begin to be felt uh, across Europe this winter um, in particular. And yeah, just keen to hear you expand on that a little bit more. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really big issue. And in some ways, I'm, I'm acutely conscious that I, I'm not an economist. I mean, but looking at it from, from a political perspective, the thing that really strikes me is that um, certainly in, in, in the countries whose domestic politics I sort of follow most closely, and I'm not going to pretend um, to be able to do it comprehensively, is that the debate about energy prices is in many ways strikingly disconnected from the debate about the war and, and, and Russia and, and, and so forth. Um, yes, people sort of, you know, genuflect to the fact of, oh, you know, it's, uh, this, is, this is all sort of because of Putin and, and, and what he's doing above all the gas flows. Um, but I think that, again, it, it, it goes back to this, this business of actually how our political masters and leaders actually frame this. And I think one of the things we have seen is really some, something of, of, a, of a crisis of leadership um, here. You know, this, this is not something that, that, that is that's going to happen briefly and then, and then end. Yes, we are involved in you know, long-term reorientation of European energy supplies to other sources with, you know, greater or lesser success, greater or lesser speeds, and, you know, in, in the long term, that will work, although, obviously, at, 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 at a cost. Um, but I, I, I'm not seeing much sign that in most countries, and I'll stress most, because obviously there are exceptions, um, the, the short-term pain is being framed in any kind of, of security terms by either the public or, or the government. And I think that, that's one of the things we, we have to accept, that, you know, if, if in order to maintain the... Um, consensus 
on continuing to wage this conflict. If that requires us to take measures such as, for example, in France with the nationalization of EDF, or as is being proposed in the UK, with actually sort of using windfall taxes to limit the way it needs, the degree to which um, energy prices will be allowed to rise. Well, again, you know, why should we be holding back? The answer is because you know, people are framing these discussions purely in terms of as if this was just simply dealing with, I don't know, a particularly hard winter or whatever. It is not. This is, this is about war. And although it may not seem to, to us that we are in the front line, we are all in the front line. In times of war, most countries become authoritarian socialisms in times of you know, full total war. Now, I'm not advocating that. But on the other hand, I, I think we, we do need to see more in the way of large and bold moves, which are clearly framed in terms of this is essential to our security. If, if energy companies have, have to sort of you know, face higher prices and higher taxes, rather, um, you know, if, if, if populations have to have to sustain some of these costs and so forth, this is why it is. So, I, I mean, I think that's the key thing. I mean, look, you know, others, I'm sure, would, would have a much, much more informed notion of precisely actually how you address the, the specific economic aspects. That, that, that's not my area. But again, I, I think that we need a greater degree of, of, of leadership and a willingness to adopt some bold measures to ensure, because otherwise this is precisely what the Kremlin is gambling on, is that at a certain point people will still, I mean, I don't think people will say, actually, we don't care about the Ukrainians. But what they will be saying is, but what I really, really care about at the moment is public spending, is energy prices and so forth. And that, that will therefore lead politicians who are thinking about what the next election is going to bring, will be thinking, well, look, if I have, I mean, recently, for example, Boris Johnson promised an extra billion pounds in support for Ukraine. Well, a billion pounds will buy you two brand new hospitals. And one could ask, well, okay, the temptation for national politicians will be to promise hospitals rather than promise more missiles for Ukraine. So I think, again, it, it, all, it all wraps together, and it's a question of basically narrative leadership. Okay, thanks very much, Mark. Um, I have another question uh, that was, um, sorry, came from a reply to the tweet. Um, so I'll, I'll read that out. It's from uh, Yatsek. Apologies if I'm mis mispronouncing. Um, question is, wouldn't it be the right moment to force a solution? Russians leave Kherson area or Kherson plus um, surrounding areas and bilingualism is implemented on both sides of the front line. Could this proposal be valid only in the next few days? And I think, Mark, you probably answered that in part during your, your comments, but um, I'll ask you to, uh, to answer if you could. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, um, look, bilingualism, quite frankly, I, I, I think you know, ought to be a, a Ukrainian policy. I mean, again, it, it, would, it would just, apart from just being arguably morally correct, huge debate one could have there but certainly politically sort of pragmatic to take away one of the sort of elements that the russians use to to justify the unjustifiable but the point is look 
the, the days when that would, would, would from, from the Kremlin's point of view, represent a sort of a, a, a triumph that, that they could honestly sort of um, trumpet a long since gone. I think this is the point. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in Kherson? Uh, the Ukrainians are, are clearly sort of, you know, fighting quite an effective uh, sort of preliminary shaping stage operation. Um, and they may well be in a position to, to retake Kherson. My suspicion is that from the Russians' point of view, or from the Kremlin's point of view, rather, actually that would be a reason to escalate in, insofar as they can rather than to, to, to make concessions. Because again, I think there, there will be this terror of, of looking weak. We, we, we know that at the best of times, Putin is, is concerned constantly about looking like he's, he's the winner. And I think, you know, at the moment, he probably feels even more uh, conscious of the need to, to maintain that, that myth. So, you know, look, I, I, I would love, I would love to be proven wrong. Um, but I, I can't see the scope for any kind of a deal at the moment even if they're some folks. All right, and thanks for, for that response as well. Um, I do have another question um, from, the, from the messages. Uh, this is from Vesper Tink Lind. Uh, and the question is about Ukraine's economy. How does Mark see um, the I guess, uh, effects or disturbance to Ukraine's economy in the long term with impacts on uh, agriculture and also the fact that uh, their metal, uh, coal and oil and gas industry uh, is being disrupted uh, in some places is, has been lost. Yeah, I mean, look, there's kind of heroic efforts being made to maintain and salvage and reorient what, what can be done. Um, you know, it's interesting, the, the recent deal over grain exports. Um, in the main, obviously, the Russians, in part, just simply, this is a, an inevitable byproduct of the war, and in part, it's clearly a, a deliberate Russian strategy to precisely undermine, damage, destroy, degrade the Ukrainian economy. And as a result, I mean, at the moment, basically, the Ukrainian economy is on life support. But it's, I would suggest, stably on life support, as long as it gets the intravenous drip or the flow of money that it needs. And in this context, I, I am concerned that one of the stories that hasn't really been addressed well, well enough is the continuing reluctance of the West to provide the, the, the financial assistance that it's promised, which is in part because... Ukraine still hasn't addressed some of the questions to do with, with, with the risks for corruption, embezzlement, and just simply uh, wastage of, of those resources. Now, I'm not taking sides here. I mean, I, I fully understand the, the, the narrative from Kiev, which is, well, uh, we're a bit busy at the moment. Uh, and also the narrative from the West, and this is both US and, and Europe, that says, well, fine, but you know, if you're expecting us to be sending some huge sums of money your way, then we, we need guarantees that they're not simply going to be wasted. I think that actually, you know, given that this is going to be, I said, I think, unfortunately, a, a, a long-term conflict, then I think it, it, it is time for Kiev to, to basically demonstrate it, its, its, its willingness to actually, even in a time of conflict, um, you know, 
carry out certain institutional reforms which are necessary, to, particularly to do with anti-corruption, sees in great progress, but there's more to be done. But also, frankly, for, for the West to acknowledge that this is that the financial support is an absolutely integral element of, of the whole war. Um, there is no point sending more multiple launch rocket systems if the Ukrainian economy collapses. So it, it, it needs to be in tandem. They are both equally important. And in terms of the, so I said, um, the, the Ukrainian economy, again, others, I, I, I need to stress it again, I'm not an economist. Um, as near as I can tell from people who are more, more sort of keyed up on this, you know, there is still going to be a considerable productive scope potential within Ukraine. It is simply a question of the fact that it, it's very difficult to realize that at a time when you have such a massive mobilization of the population. You know, so many young, young and not so young men are in, in military service, and millions others have, have, have you know, women and children have left the country. And that the, you know, there is a, a problem with the overall sort of management of the nation in civil terms. So I think, yeah, it's, it's something about you know, this is going to be the West's responsibility to keep it going and then to be willing to provide the kind of martial plan that the country will need in, in the future. But there are things that, that Kiev can be doing, both to ensure better management of the country, but also perhaps more importantly, to reassure the West, or in some cases, given that in some, I do feel, and maybe I'm being over cynical here, but there are some in the West, particularly certain countries that have expressed rather more Ukraine fatigue, where concern about the risks of um, corruption is used as an excuse to not send money that they frankly rather not send. So I think also it's about Kiev taking away that excuse from those who rather skimp on financial support. Uh, thanks very much for that, Mark. It's kind of uh, laying out, I guess, additional challenges for, for both Ukraine and the West um, on this um, and I'll note that I think in the U.S. Uh, political discourse, you know, this issue of of corruption, uh, you know, is uh, is still um, uh, getting some attention uh, in terms of Ukraine. Okay, um, I, we're running low on time. I'll take one more question, if uh, if there is one. Um, I'll just give it a few moments. If anyone has an additional question. Okay, um, I think we can, oh, here's a question, uh, last minute. Uh, bear with me a second. A uh, question from Richard Kepler. Uh, yes, hello, thank you very much for doing this space. It's wonderful to hear experts uh, uh, give us some solid information like this. I, I just wanted to ask, uh, Henry Kissinger has been making statements about the objective of ending the war being the status quo ante, meaning the line of contact uh, along the February 24th line of contact, and that pursuing it beyond that would turn it into a war not about the freedom of Ukraine, but a new war against Russia itself, he says. Is, is there any validity in, in 
looking at that as the objective that uh, Western countries should be uh, trying to achieve. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks for that, Richard. Yeah, I'm, look, it, it really depends on precisely what, what the goal is. I mean, actually, going to the status quo ante is not really anything to do with, with, with freedom and, and, and so forth for, for Ukraine, because it requires Ukraine to de facto, if not de jure, give up chunks of its own territory, Crimea, as well as the so-called People's Republics. It also means giving up on the people there. I mean, I think you know, we, we, we have to acknowledge the degree to which actually the, the, the people in these areas, Crimea, you know, I think probably even if there had been a genuine, truly uh, independent vote, I suspect that the majority of Crimeans in 2014 would have voted to join the Russian Federation. I'm not at all convinced that one can say the same about the DNR and the LNR, the, the, the pseudo-states. Um, and in some ways, I, I regard the, the Ukrainian citizens there as frankly as hostages of Moscow rather than allies. So it, 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 you know, it is about sort of surrendering them. Um, look, there is this mantra in the West that uh, the war is basically, you know, it's, it, it's for Ukraine to decide when the war ends. There is truth in that, but I think also it's naive to pretend that the West has no interests and will basically go along with whatever Ukraine wants. You know, if, if Ukraine did actually turn around and say, no, actually, our goal is the reconstitution of the historic grand Ukraine, which includes large swaths of what is currently the Russian Federation, and there's absolutely no reason to suggest that that would happen. But I'm just using it as an example. It's not as though the West would say, OK, well, fair enough, and we'll continue to arm you to that end. Um, a lot of that mantra is, is frankly, for public consumption. Um, it very, very quickly breaks down when, when you're talking to people behind closed doors. And it also, it's a way of avoiding the necessary and difficult discussion in the West about precisely what it is that we are willing to support and what it is we're not, because there is no unity there. There are countries who frankly regard this primarily as an opportunity to believe the Russian Federation. There are countries who see this as precisely about giving Ukraine its freedom back. There are countries that frankly regard this all as a pain in the backside. They have to go along with it, but they wish the whole issue would go away. Um, I, I sort of refer to this as a struggle between the, the, the hawks, the doves, and the ostriches. Um, so, I mean, in this context, I mean, I, I, I think Kissinger's intervention was both predictable and unhelpful. Um, yes, one can see the sort of, you know, if, if you see politics as some kind of sort of chess game, then yes, I can see why as a gambit, you're more likely to get peace if you're willing to make those concessions. You know, if, if the Ukrainians found themselves in a position where they could retake either the Donbass or Crimea, and yet they prove willing to make some kind of a deal with the Russians that allows them to keep it, well, fine, that probably would accelerate the speed of some kind of a deal. But precisely, it would require the Ukrainians to make uh, you know, serious concessions. It would probably destroy the, the political career of whoever leader actually sort of pushes that through. Um, and it would actually convey the message to, to Putin and to others who are watching that essentially it's, it's always worth having a go because the worst case scenario is you end up, you know, just basically back at your starting point. Um, you know, I, th I think there is a degree to which actually that, that strikes me personally as, as both deeply immoral, but also a recipe for future conflicts. I think one way or the other, this is not the time 
to be talking about deals which will involve territorial concessions of that kind. I could see a deal that allows Crimeans to, for example, have a, another and a genuinely free vote that is under independent international supervision. Because, you know, we do believe in the self-determination of peoples. Um, but again, that would entirely be dependent on the people of Crimea. And it would actually have to be a truly and genuinely independent vote. But that's, that's very much for the future. I think for the moment, yes, look, we, 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 can, we can all feel self-important and we can all write op-eds. And some of us, like Kissinger, are tremendously big and important. And some people, like me, are largely irrelevant. Um, but we ought to recognize, actually, with a certain degree of humility, that basically it will be the verdict of the battlefield, not the verdict of the op-eds, that actually shapes what kind of a peace emerges. Thanks, Mark. That's a very, very clear framing of it. Um, so thanks very much for that response. And thanks to everybody uh, for their questions. Um, I am going to wrap it up here. Uh, so I'd just like to say, Mark, thanks very much for joining me. Always a pleasure. All right. Um, once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti or we have been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern European, East European Studies in London, and author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin and the Weaponization of Everything. And I'm sorry, Mark, I, I left out your, uh, what you're doing now. Can you, can you repeat that if you'd like? Sure, no, I mean, just mentioning that I'm in DC at the moment, uh, briefly as a public Policy Fellow at the Wilson Center. All right. Thanks very much. And my name is Steve Gutterman, Editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. And as I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back next Monday for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. And please keep an eye out for the next edition of my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on August 26th. Thanks for listening.